0: in the United States it's very easy to be uh, um, myopic in your thinking of, and when you look at images of mothers and children in other parts of the world in in very poor settings those could be the slums of Mumbai to the you know most rural part of um, Mongolia and think that somehow those people are different and the mothers are different or the that anything's just so far removed from our everyday reality here and what I want people to understand is it's actually no different like those mothers love their babies as much as you do and as much as I do
1: Welcome to And Then Everything Changed, a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us. I'm your host, Ronit Plank. Today I'm speaking with Anna Marie Saarinen. She's an economist, Humphrey Policy Fellow, and co founder of both the Newborn Foundation and Bloom Standard, a social impact innovation lab developing medical technologies for children in resource poor settings. The Newborn Foundation was founded after her own newborn was diagnosed with critical congenital heart defects and has focused on developing policies, programs, and technologies to improve early diagnosis, health outcomes, and access to care for mothers and babies. Welcome, Anna Marie.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: I'm really happy you're here. And for me, it's a challenge to figure out where I want to dive in first because you've done so many things and I know that you were a journalist before this chapter of your life began. So can you talk a little bit about what kind of uh, work you were doing in journalism?
0: Well, sure. It goes back um, almost, it feels like another lifetime ago, but I suppose I shouldn't date myself right off the bat. But I actually... Um, had these aspirations as a young child to either be a journalist or a diplomat, which is so such a funny thing, right, <laughs> to think back on when you're a little kid, to be. And, you know, I, I feel like for some reason, the universe has actually guided me down a path where I got to do a little bit of both, which has been uh-huh. really,
1: uh, yeah. really well, fun. I'm curious, because you grew up sort of in the middle of the
0: country, right? I did. I grew up on a farm in southern Minnesota, like I don't even
1: think I knew what a diplomat was when I was yeah. a
0: kid. So how did I know? <laughs> yeah, no, I, it's funny, and I, I wonder. I think back on that, like, how did I know? And my mom was an, um, an English teacher, a mm-hmm. literature teacher, and and my dad um, was both a farmer and a, a, a tool and die maker. So he had um, another a trade profession in mm. addition to farming, and I think my parents just exposed both of us to a lot of. Um, global, global learnings. And um, it just put a wide lens on Mm -hmm. what we understood and knew of even growing up in rural America. (laughs) Yeah. Were they
1: pretty open-ended about whatever they thought their children wanted to do?
0: I think they were quite open-ended about what their kids wanted to do. I, I don't remember them fostering that in any particular way other than we always had access to a lot of books and newspapers and um you know, we're like most kids of the seventies I suppose, where you gather <laughs> around the T V and watch. Yeah. You know, um, Dan Rather, whomever it yes, was at the exactly. time. You know, but <laughs> well, I remember Walter Cronkite too. Yes, Walter Cronkite. Exactly. <laughs> My parents just, you know, we weren't afraid to have those conversations or or answer questions from their perspective um, if we had them about what was happening in the world. And so, um, the fact that I I I think forty years later that I that I got to sit down and um have a sandwich and go fishing with President Carter and his wife was just such a like profound like thing for me as an adult thinking like how in the world could I ever, you know, end up here and talking to someone who was also a farmer that became president of the United States, and so we uh-huh. we just I had the loveliest chat with him about my upbringing and his upbringing, and I think he had a, a special he has a, maybe I don't know he's you know of course he's a former president he's going to be polite to all, <laughs> but um, I think he has probably a special place in his heart for fellow fellow farmers, and so um, that was just such a an absolute delight, but I don't uh-huh. know how I I I wished to be someone who understood things from a global perspective and maybe helped try to bring people and people together in a way. I think in my head, that's what I thought a diplomat was. And so when I went off to um, college in my undergrad, uh-huh. I ended up, um, I, I was doing a lot of writing, you know, in school and I knew um, I wanted to minor, if not double major in, in journalism and I, I was able to meet the news director of uh, the TV station in n- nearest to where my college was. And they happened to be short of people at that time and said, like, well, listen, why don't you come in and shadow some of our reporters and producers for for hmm. a little bit, see what you think and see what you... And I don't know what happened, but somehow within like a month, mm-hmm. I was... Um, you know, writing the, helping write the show script. And then they put me out into the field as a, as a a little cub, little cub reporter. And I was like,
1: (laughs) that's like one of those stories you hear about that you wish will happen to you, you know, in whatever discipline you're following, that someone will just pluck you and realize how
0: great you can be. It was, it was crazy and not, not at all by design, (laughs) but I super, super enjoyed it. Um, The hours were horrible and the pay is even more horrible I I remember I still I think somewhere in the pantheon of the things I've saved over the years was my first paycheck. And it was, you know, like ninety seven dollars or something. And I was so excited (laughs) to be like, I'm a journalist.
1: (laughs) So so you were a journalist. Where were you living as a as an adult that was soon going to have uh, the baby that would change your life?
0: Yeah, so ultimately, I I moved back to to Minnesota. I feel like all all roads lead back to Minnesota for whatever reason, <laughs> um, and people only people that are from Minnesota sort of get that. And we're just like, yeah, you know, you go away and you live other places, but you always come back here. And I think it, we just do appreciate once you're away, you appreciate what a special place it is that you want to, you know, raise children here, and you know, you understand why families stay here and live their entire lives here. You don't feel like a desire to like get out of Dodge, really. Mm. I think everybody has a little bit of that when they're young and just coming out of high school or what have you. But um, by this point in, in my life, I, I wasn't um, a journalist anymore. I had moved on to, and I had covered um, politics, actually, government and politics while I was a reporter. So um, it was sort of the next natural transition for me was to kind of go back, stay in public policy. I was really interested in that intersection and health policy. Really, it was something that like became an a early passion of mine and something I stuck with um, my entirety, my career, really. So by this point, I'm, I'm back in the Twin Cities and my my husband and I had had a uh, another daughter. And then I was, this is my third pregnancy. (laughs) I'm just like, Oh my goodness. They go very close together. Mm -hmm. Um, these, these two babies, um, not really by, again, by choice, just by happenstance. And, um, and yeah, we, we were here, um, in not living in a house, not far from the one I live in now. And, um, when I went into labor, uh, just, couple weeks ago this time of year as I watched the snow falling out my window now. It felt very much like tonight, you know, just, um, but it was, it was time to have the baby. And like all my babies, she was a, a couple weeks shy of when she probably should come, but not really premature. And I think uh, all things, you know, I had a completely uneventful pregnancy, but I was an older mom. So, you know, I think lots of extra little checked boxes when you go into those appointments they do extra ultrasounds and things just to make sure the baby's okay make sure you're okay and it's everything had been I mean I I worked I w- literally was working the day I went into labor and called my doctor. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I don't know. Like, what do you think? I mean, their contractions are <laughs> pretty close together. Should I, like, cancel this meeting I have at 3? It was like mm-hmm. that. Yeah. Did you cancel it? <laughs> I did cancel it. I ended up going <laughs> um, to the hospital late that afternoon. And, um, you know, doctor was... Doctor was ready to go and had the baby and she was just this adorable little pixie with lots of dark hair and little pointy ears even. She was actually mm-hmm. supposed to be due on Christmas Eve. Um, so this would have been just, again, a little tad bit, tad bit before that. And, um, you know, we were just enjoying the uh, the wonder of bringing, being able to bring home a new baby for Christmas. And, uh, yeah, I think that's when... The world changed for us was that hospital stay. Mm -hmm. So from
1: what I've read, and I know we talked a little bit about this before, um, nothing seemed amiss and everything about her looked great. And then was a doctor doing rounds and then heard something that sounded different?
0: Yeah, um, we were getting ready to go home and set up You know, for discharge. And there's a rounding pediatrician that comes to do their last bit of check on the babies before you get set home. And she mentioned that she had heard a murmur um, on her physical exam. And just, you know, I I didn't think anything of it really. Um, Again, I'm not sure if it's just a third baby syndrome or just (laughs) because she was quite calm about it. She was like, look, it's, you know, quite common in babies. They have what I know now to be transitional circulation, and this can happen. And um, they usually just send the babies home and check them at their their one week or their 10-day while well baby visit just to make sure everything's go good. So so I was mm-hmm. good with that plan because she was good with that plan. Right. And um, she came back around maybe like half hour, hour later and said, you know, there's um a technician here with a an echo machine from the University of Minnesota evaluating another baby. And since they're here, I think maybe we'll just send Eve back over to the nursery and have them take a look that way. You know, peace of mind. I don't want you to worry about it. And, and then I'll, I won't have to worry about it. So, so that's what we did. Eve went back in and it's an echocardiogram is basically um, an ultrasound of the heart. So if you know, you know, how you think about ultrasound, just a wand and Doppler waves are, are kicking back information that is translated into an image on the screen. Uh-huh. And um, so it's, it's non-invasive, you know, baby can sleep through it, basically. Um, so we did that. And then we were still like packing stuff up in our room and a cardiologist showed up within about an hour, I would say, and told us our baby was in heart failure. And she needed to be moved to the nearest ICU. And I remember very distinctly looking at this doctor and saying like, oh, you must have the wrong room. There was another baby down the hall that was having an echo. It must Uh be, you know, maybe you're in the wrong place. And he said, no, this, no, it's your baby. And I said, well, she's not, I mean, you can see her. She's resting right here. And he said, yes, I know. But, um, we need to de- determine, you know, how sick she is, and and um, we she this hospital is not equipped to deal with a, a baby um, that's in your child's condition.
1: I just it's it's so jarring. I mean,
0: it's jarring
1: on so many levels, especially because it seems to disagree with everything you and your husband were seeing right in front of you.
0: Yes, everything.
1: I mean. And I've seen pictures of her. She looked, you know, just absolutely beautiful and healthy. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, that's why there was such a disconnect for me and why I was so Mm -hmm. convinced the doctor was in the wrong place. (laughs) Um, Of course, if I knew then what I know now, you know, I I, I would have, you know, responded differently. But at the time, I think I just there just wasn't any logic to it Um, Mm -hmm. for me, even connecting the dots with the murmur. Right. There should have been some logic to it. But. Mm-hmm. But at any rate, her um, her heart was already three times the size it should have been, was pushing her internal organs down into her stomach cavity.
1: Mm. Was it large? It Was that part of the—was that the result of what was wrong with the heart? Or, like, why was mm-hmm.
0: the—you
1: know what I mean? Yeah, you know
0: mm-hmm. yeah because—well, um, we didn't know at the time. I mean, really didn't know until um, she was moved to the other facility and they did— you know, follow-up echocardiogram, additional tests to really determine what was causing it. Um, it. Her mitral valve was defective. So there's like a leaflet on the valve that opens and closes systematically. And it lets the oxygenated blood go from one part of the heart to the other. And her valve just wouldn't close. Um, so it, just, oh. it, it was just hard to imagine it, the way they explained it to me, even when she was a baby. It was, it's a bit like a parachute, you know, kind of like opens and closes in her case, um, this tethers on the on the parachute, the thing that like goes up to the top part, just they they weren't quite formed right, so that leaflet couldn't open and close. So the blood was just kind of sloshing back and forth between the two chambers, mm. and with that um, happening with with the heart, it just caused that left that's the left side of her heart to just get bigger and bigger and bigger, um, and uh, you know the, the the terrifying thing is that. She clearly would never have made it to the one-week well visit, so she would have likely, you know, gone home. We wouldn't have probably noticed the symptoms um, quick enough, responded quick Mm -hmm. enough, and we likely would have, you know, found out after the fact. Um,
1: And that does happen. I know that there's a statistic. Is it still accurate to say 1 in
0: 100 babies have this kind of defect? Hmm. Yes, uh, 1% of all babies have not her type of defect, but a congenital heart defect of some sort or another. And about uh, 40% of those are serious or critical, uh, requiring some kind of intervention um, in the early stages of life, maybe not in the first few weeks of life. Those are c- the critical defects like what Eve had Um but they're serious enough where they need attention. Either they can be managed with medications or will require a surgical intervention.
1: You know, when I when I had my children, I didn't understand that this was, you know, not out of the realm of possibility, numbers-wise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me neither.
0: <laughs> I, did, right. I really didn't. I really didn't know. And I had done quite a bit of volunteer work for an organization that worked— um, to provide uh, surgeries and services to children with congenital heart disease. So I actually had done work in that space even prior to Eve being born, but I don't think I ever really had my head around the statistics and the probability. And so to have that, like our family become that one out of a hundred was, (laughs) I don't know, it's just was such a, a strange coincidence. Maybe it was, maybe it was the right kind of coincidence since I had a little bit of a bearing to know what to do with that information. Um, it doesn't make the blow any less though. Did you have to keep her in the hospital then? Was she being monitored? Oh yes. Yes. It was a very rough week. I don't know. I remember when I finally made it over there, um, because they weren't going to discharge me quite yet because of my, um, Surgery, and Mm -hmm. so my husband followed the ambulance in a the Lifelink that took her there, and the blizzard (laughs) to the other hospital. And I didn't come till the next morning. I can't imagine. I can't imagine what you were going through. I feel like I went into like a little bit of triage mode. Like, look, here's what needs to happen. Even I told the doctor because they're like, well, you really can't go, and you really shouldn't go until you know later you know, in the day after I come, the OBGYN comes back around. And I was like, look, here's what's going to happen. <laughs> you're going to call my prescriptions over to the other hospital and I'm going to get them there, the, the, like the pain medication and the whatever uh-huh. else they had me on. At the, I said, and you're going to call me a taxi because I'm not going to like ask any, you know, we, we had other kids that were being managed at home by our families and friends. And I wasn't going to bother anybody about like getting me from point A to point B. I was just like, here's what's going to happen, you know, <laughs> step one, step two. And, um, and it was, you know, since you were so felt so powerless about what was going on with the baby, I felt like maybe I was just taking control of the other things I, I did have a little bit of ability to, to manage at that moment. But, mm-hmm. um, but it was really like information was trickling in. Um, from over overnight, and that day when I finally made it over there, and I, but I will tell you like that first. Like we went from literally like the doctors like we think we can manage this with these medications, like you might be able to go home for Christmas. It was literally like that. We're like, oh, this is like we can we can handle this. Like it's under control. To um, your baby might not survive the night. Well, I mean, seriously, within like. 24 to 48 hour swing on what was going on with her and I was like wait you just told us we might be going home for Christmas like how I don't understand and like well we didn't realize and now she's had this um and she started having this tachycardia basically so her heart rate would go up to like 300 beats a minute just out of nowhere which is crazy it's like a hummingbird right And I'm like how Mm -hmm. does that even happen so she had this other electrical pathway anomaly with her heart Called Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, that was actually making the valve situation even worse. So it it was just this crazy combination. Even just the mitral valve defect is so rare. Um, Only about maybe 12 babies a year are diagnosed with that. And so they were just really trying to understand, like, what are we going to do with this baby? Because we don't even know how we would operate on this. At, at at being how, how tiny she was at that time. Mm-hmm. So,
1: so she needed surgery ultimately.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and from what I understand, you had, the, the, the hospital had to wait until she got to a certain age. And what was it so that she was big enough or stable enough?
0: Yeah, there's, this, again, I didn't know any of this stuff at the time, right? This is just knowledge over time now. Um, but uh-huh. there's this sweet spot for babies that have critical heart defects where, you know, the surgeons will operate on them as tiny, tiny newborns if there's literally no choice. Like, we, if we don't do it now, the baby's not going to survive. Um, if they can medically managed, like if, if you can, like my daughter was on a cocktail of about nine different heart medications around the clock, um, to try to keep her heart functioning. If you're able to do that and you're able to get some calories in the baby, the best case scenario for them is to operate when they're about, you know, 10 weeks old, 12 weeks old. If you can get them to three months that's like the golden ticket for the surgeons because the babies are just, they're a little bigger, they're a little stronger, but they straddle this line of, um, but if you wait a week too long, then their heart failure has gotten so profound that it's more dangerous to operate, right? So it's this this balancing act and you know, we were in a situation where we were getting even multiple echoes in a single day just to make sure we understood what her heart status was. Can we push it a little bit longer? How is she responding to this medication or that medication? um, So that we can just get her a little bit bigger. And, you know, gratefully we were sort of able to do that and hit that mark of, uh, you know, about three months of age so that, um, you know, she was just a little bit bigger, but she was still tiny. I mean, like, and was she still in the hospital too? Yeah, I mean nine pounds. I, yeah. I think you know if you think about a, a three or three and a half month old baby and what they're typically looking yeah. like for weight, like she was still the size of a of a you know heavier size newborn, I guess. Born, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. She was the size of my newborn.
1: Yeah, <laughs> um, I had big babies, but so uh, did you ever have a moments? I mean, how did you navigate your life with your other children and your mental, uh, any kind of peace or rest when your youngest was in the hospital in this precarious position?
0: Uh, I don't know that we navigated it terribly well, but I think we were incredibly fortunate to have um, both sets of parents. In mm-hmm. the state of Minnesota, they weren't like they didn't live around the corner. My parents lived to the south, um, same were, same place where I grew up on the farm in southern Minnesota. My husband's parents lived in northern Minnesota on the Iron Range. And so, you know, they were, um, well, at least my parents were fully retired. Um, and my husband's parents, you know, were able to kind of juggle Things his mom, uh, I think was working at least not full time at that point. So they, um, came to the house and just really helped make sure the kids got fed and got to school and, and such. I mean, our, our other baby was still a baby, really. Uh-huh. I mean, Eve was, or el, my older daughter was, um, you know, only, uh, 15, 16 months old when Eve was born. So uh, I don't know. That's how we navigated, with help, really, mm-hmm. with friends and family. Mm-hmm.
1: And so can you talk a little bit about what happened after the surgery and then how you became involved in the larger scope of this work you do?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, so even before her surgery, that's when I started I told you I went down the rabbit hole. I was really, really mm-hmm. researching Um not just the incidence rate, like how many babies does this happen to? The really important part for me was like, how many babies are born with congenital heart disease that actually might be discharged from the hospital without knowing they have congenital heart disease? Because that's mm-hmm. the boat we were in, right? Like if we uh-huh. didn't like that crazy scenario that where that hospital that cart was there and that tech was there because of that other baby, that was just like sheer luck. Yeah. It was no, that would not have happened. Uh, you know, she was going to be sent home. So I was like, huh, you know, how 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 can this be that these babies that are really, really sick don't look sick at all? And and so, cause, you know, were we just that random a case or, or not? And what I figured out is that really uh, um, more than a third of babies in, in our country, in the United States, were leaving the hospital with undiagnosed congenital heart disease and i was like what like what are how is that, how is that possible yeah exactly like, that's a lot right like 30 especially because we screen for so many other things it seems it seems right yeah exactly you've had the blood spot screening you know they screen for you know hearing loss before the babies go home they have and obviously our the doctors pediatricians are vigilant about their about their physical exams you know that's how they catch these these things in theory but I couldn't even get my head around like that's a huge number right like we have 40,000 you know babies yeah. a year being born in our just in the United States with congenital heart defects and mm-hmm. if if you think about how many of those are probably diagnosed prenatally like because prenatal exam might pick it up well that number's maybe fairly Significant in, you know, larger urban settings um, that have, you know, larger health systems and more highly trained technicians and all of that. But in part, rural parts of the country, or even Minnesota, right? Like I live in the mm-hmm. Twin Cities. I don't live out in a rural area yet. My baby wasn't diagnosed prenatally, and I had all the extra bells and whistles, right? Because I was forty. Yeah, that's an important distinction, too. Well, not only that, and if,
1: you know, I may add, you had education behind you and resources and confidence in your ability to communicate with your medical staff. And that's, you know, you had whiteness, like all these things that so many other people
0: may not have. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. So I, I just, it really struck me as like, even if you take the... Prenatal diagnoses out of the equation. How many families are 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 left to find out after their babies are born, and what are their chances of finding out? Right, like how? I mean, the chance the the chance we had is a a, probably not a one in a hundred shot, probably like a one in ten thousand shot. Mm -hmm. So, so what you know, what can be done about this? Like, what are the other things that have been looked at to try to make sure this doesn't happen? And there was just some very early studies coming out of Europe looking at how you could use a pulse oximeter on um, a newborn, otherwise healthy-looking newborn, um, that might pick up an abnormal oxygen saturation. And if it's abnormal oxygen saturation, then the doctors can take that next level of test, probably an echocardiogram or, or doing another physical exam with an echo or something like that, to find out if the baby's got a cardiac problem. Uh-huh. And so I was like, this is pretty, this is interesting stuff. I mean, it's kind of pretty compelling. I mean, the, the data, I mean, I was reading it as a novice, right? But uh-huh. it's still, even, even I could understand, like, this has got a pretty decent pickup rate. And right. I, I was like, pulse oximeters are like kind of all over the place, right? I mean, I see them in the hospital. Uh-huh. My kids had one on her foot for like the last three months right? I mean, nonstop. So I was like, this isn't new tech. It's not expensive, really. I mean, if you think about it, like it's used pretty pervasively in the hospital setting. It's just not used for babies that aren't sick or people that aren't sick. But listen, if you or I walked out today and slipped off our step and sprained our ankle and went to the urgent care, they're going to throw a pulse oximeter on you like that's how common they are nowadays Mm -hmm. right but Mm -hmm. so anyway I was just like wow that's interesting like what's the you know is any are there any U.S. studies on this is anybody talking about this and so I, I I went back to our our doctors our clinical team at the at the hospital at the University of Minnesota and I just said listen I don't know if you guys have any interest in this but you know, maybe we could do some sort of a, a a pilot study here to look at whether or not what they're doing in Europe is like, you know, got some, got some merit and, you know, might be able to prove out that this is something worth looking at for babies born in our country. And at the same day or week, I called the State Department of Health and I, I asked then they said, listen, I think we're going to do this research study and would you have any interest? And it was the newborn screening unit specifically that I reached out to, I'm fully expecting them to say like, yeah, that's interesting. Good luck with that. But I mean, they actually were interested and wanted
1: to be part of it. Well, it's funny too, like for, for just a regular civilian, you know, cause I'm thinking about all your experience in journalism and then how you've been, you know, really entrenched in kind of policy and health policy. It's, it's interesting to me that you thought that you might not even have, um, a way in because you had so much more than someone like me would have to, in this approach.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I, I actually thought that at the time. <laughs> I was very much like, oh, it's kind of like a, you know, it's, it's like a Hail Mary. It's like a little bit of a long yeah. shot. But let's, you know, let's just see who might be interested. Because again, let's just go back to the whole, like, bringing people together, right? Like, I think that part of my personality definitely came into play, was to say, well, because, you know, it would have been very easy to just go back to the hospital and just have get this one hospital to do it. But in, oh, yeah. But insti- it's very easy to th- do that. That, that That's <laughs> the like logic. Well, to get them to say yes is still a big win, right? Because it's a huge, yes. you know, it's a children's hospital. It's an academic research center. But,
1: but I mean, I would even say like some people, I mean, not everyone would think beyond, and there's nothing wrong with this at all. Not everyone is going to think beyond the safety of their baby.
0: Well, I suppose that might be that's that's possible, too. And I, I
1: think, I you know, just in terms of bandwidth and, you know, time and resources and, and confidence in themselves to try to affect change. Yeah, I, I, I suppose
0: that's true. But I, I was really, really like got borderline obsessed Right. Like (laughs) I was binge watching my own TV show as a way of like (laughs) I couldn't stop. I was like, this has to like we we need more information. Like something has to happen here. Like I could not get the thought out of my head of like that many children being discharged without a diagnosis. And one out of five of those babies would find out, you know, their parents would find out from the morgue that their baby Uh had a heart defect. Like that's like, so wrong, like on every level. And so I, I think the fact that our daughter survived her two surgeries just was more like oil on the wheel to be like, listen, we're so fortunate. Like we have to do something like for other families here. We just have to. And, but anyway, I think the whole idea of like bringing different sectors together to try to accelerate things was that's part of where I'm hardwired that way. And I know it's a very interesting thing. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know if it's good or bad. But in this case, I think it was good because I decided to like, it wasn't just her hospital and her clinicians, right? Like we, we got six hospitals And with two of one of those being Mayo, and then um, you know a a county hospital, a university hospital, and then a couple of the hospitals were actually um, not right here in the Twin Cities. They were in um, a a community setting, right outside of the metro, Mm -hmm. so that you could prove out that if you're going to do this kind of a screening test in a place that wouldn't necessarily have a pediatric cardiologist available immediately or a pediatric echocardiographer avail like you know what I mean like it was yeah. my head was like let's let's work through the problems and this first pass so that someone can't come back to us and say like well that's great but you only did your study in a like you know fancy academic research center what about those babies born out in rural medicine like we tried to like be ahead of that and mm-hmm. I think having the State Department of Health be a, a, a partner on this this research was, was the first time it had ever been done, first of all. But secondly, that provided us um, not only the sort of additional kind of backbone to make sure the the project could get leveraged in the way it needed to be after the fact, but it also opened up this this next door for me, which is where I really felt like I was finding my sweet spot as as Eve's mother and as a professional, it like really has worked in policy for a lot of years was that there was actually a policy pathway for adding things that we can actually screen babies for. So we can pick something up earlier than we normally would to improve an outcome on the backside. And that's what that blood spot screening is all about. And that's what the hearing screening was all about, is Mm -hmm. is, is testing for things that we wouldn't normally be able to see in these babies so that they can get a treatment that's going to either save their life or improve their outcome. Mm -hmm. And congenital heart disease actually was one of those things that we could do that for hmm
1: Right. And so then how long did it take for the study to, to complete and for the policy to happen?
0: So the study took a year and a half. Um, I think we wanted it to maybe wrap a bit sooner than that. I think we did only, we collected data for about, uh, Slightly less than a year, but then it took another, you know, six months of analyzing the data and pulling it together to get it published as a manuscript. But while that was happening, like literally while we had launched the study, um, I was asked to come and talk about the program that we were doing at this multi hospital um, study with the State Department of Health in Minnesota. And at that meeting, was a gentleman from Mayo Clinic who, um, he chaired the committee at that time, but he also served on the Federal Advisory Committee for Heritable Disorders in Newborns and Children, which is basically Mm -hmm. the Federal Newborn Screening Committee. I didn't, until that very moment, I actually didn't know there was such a thing. And I was like, huh interesting this guy this gentleman this doctor came up to me afterwards and he said you know i know you want your data but listen there's an actual um federal advisory committee that recommends to the secretary of health and human services in our country all the things that babies should be screened for and i was like really how do you how does one go about uh seeing if a new condition should be added to that Because let me send you an email so within three months um, he had prepared. We did together prepared the nomination packet. He submitted it um, for uh, review at the January 2020 meeting, and was accepted unanimously into evidence review at with this committee, which is an incredibly like thorough and rigorous process to discern, determine whether a particular medical condition meets the criteria for um, inclusion on the newborn screening panel and whether state programs can actually implement it as a population health screening, meaning every baby will get it. So that mm-hmm. is like the, a fundamental um, distinction from newborn screening versus some test that you can randomly get uh, one mm-hmm. off, right? That like, I'm going to pay for that test because I want to have that test. Or mm-hmm, Right. Like, like, so there's a really, it's it's truly a public health program versus just something else that's on the uh, a la carte menu of things doctors can recommend. And it was effective as of what date? So within nine months of when it was introduced at that meeting, when I flew out to DC to testify in support of this condition being added to the panel, within nine months, the committee recommended to the Secretary of Health and Human Services that every baby in the country should be screened for heart defects before they leave the hospital. So it took then the secretary a full year before she officially added it to what's called the RUSP, the Routine Uniform Screening Panel. So that was September. So September 2010 was when the committee sent it to the secretary And September 2011 is when critical heart, congenital heart disease screening was added to the panel. And how did you feel when that happened? Oh, my gosh. Crazy. (laughs) It was crazy. I had um, brought, my mother had never been to Washington, D.C., so I brought her out. And then we brought Eve out in her little stroller. Mm -hmm. And I had her, (laughs) she slept through the whole meeting in her stroller. (laughs) And... um, I will tell you the day they voted to send it to the secretary was like I've never I don't think I've ever experienced a feeling like that in my entire life. I was just incredible. I was like this really mattered, like mm-hmm. it really really mattered. And and then you know there there were there were certain points in between that were filled with um, lots of drama, um, because like what oh I think we just I just thought, well, now that it's to the secretary, you know, it was written into statute that the secretary had a fixed amount of time, six months, Mm -hmm. to respond to recommendations from the Federal Advisory Committee. And that six-month marker was approaching in the spring of 2011. And I was like, oh, why haven't, you know, I was like, no, I don't stress, you know, maybe this is just how it rolls. They're busy, wait till the last to the very last right to mm-hmm. add something but it was really like it's like why it's down to the wire you know mm-hmm. so I started um poking around a bit with the folks that I had forged connections and had had been really incredible mentors to me in in this process and checked in with them to be like what does anybody know what's going on and we had heard from uh the I I suppose I missed, like, during this whole time is when the Newborn Foundation really began, right? Formally, like, we formed a 501c3. This was happening in concert as you were Mm -hmm. waiting for policy? Yes, right. Mm -hmm. Like, we launched the, we formally launched the foundation in in September of 2010, the same Mm -hmm. time when, when the the um, recommendation that had been passed along to Secretary Sibelius at the time. Uh-huh. And my co-founder for the Newborn Foundation was is an incredible policy person in DC and really has his ear to the ground on all things. And so he, he sort of did his own little kind of sussing out like what was what was kind of happening. And it, it was just if you can Rewind your mental clock back to 2010, there was a lot of angst about the Affordable Care Act uh-huh. and implementation of the Affordable Care Act. And so there was generally a lot of um, hesitation on behalf of the, the White House and the administration to rock the boat in any way. Uh, uh-huh. And as as much as it may not seem like something like this was in any possible way rocking any boat, yeah. um, anything that could have been perceived as a, a mandate or a requirement or whatever was something that could be sort of exploited or maybe used against mm-hmm. um the current administration and their efforts for the Affordable Care Act, even though one had really nothing to do with the other. That really makes sense to, to
1: kind of ground that in time. Yeah. Um, you know, it gives some perspective about that. But so you're raising your children. You Eve is growing. I assume she's doing well at this point.
0: She's doing, she's doing quite well. Um, you know, a few, about three years later, when she was just turning four, she was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And so, you know, that put us on another like crazy medical odyssey that, you know, completely unexpected. And I think we had to deal with things at that point that were quite, quite different and quite challenging in their own way. And I think there was a lot of residual that came out of like uh, what that surgery was like for her and what that meant for her. Um, But yeah, we're, we're incredibly fortunate. We do spend a lot of time with doctors. (laughs) We spend a lot of time at hospital. Uh So a lot of these doctors, um, especially Eve's um, in the cardiology community, have become uh, very good friends, allies. They're almost all part of the Newborn Foundation's work in one way or another, um, working at project sites, not just in the United States, but in other countries. So we've sort of expanded this sort of research and policy work into 12 other countries internationally oh, wow. to follow the, the same sort of model that we that we used here. And you've traveled quite a bunch. I have traveled up until this year yeah <laughs> I mean part of our, our work isn't just to embed within the public health infrastructure but wherever we can um, we try to again bring bring entities together, to support, encourage, maybe a little bit of carrot and stick where we need it. Um, I I tend mm-hmm. to meet with the uh, at the embassy, the U.S. embassy in the countries we work in, so that the ambassador is aware of the work that we're doing as a U.S.-based NGO in those countries, mm-hmm. and then um, you know they can you know pen a nice message to uh, the head of the Ministry of Health in that country, you know, saying you know that they're in support of the work that we're doing, offer to provide additional, you know, resources on the ground there if, if those can be brought to bear on a project. So so we do a lot of that kind of, again, diplomacy-type work that, that helps mm, accelerate yes. the policy <laughs> pieces. Yes. And so do you enjoy that part as well? Very much. Very much. Um, mm-hmm. It's just been I, – I can't even – it's, it's it's hard to actually articulate what a um, just incredible joy it has been to be able to um, get you know sort of disparate parties um, talking to each other and, and thinking in, in a like-minded way about how you improve access to care and services for for these these underserved children and there are um, many of them that are just, you know, it's not just a matter of being from a poor family or coming from a a, a, a poor um, area. You know, these the, a lot of these children are very far from care and services. So my my rural roots, <laughs> you know, are mm-hmm. often uh, I'll be in a place that's twelve hundred miles from the nearest. A hospital that could actually treat one of these babies yet babies are being born you know at a place that's in the middle of nowhere mm-hmm. so having those conversations with um, health officials and and those uh, within uh, the diplomatic realm are it's just incredibly fulfilling one of the, the the things we worked on going back almost to the beginning but not quite this far was this Access to echocardiography and and what we refer to as essential imaging for babies and children, and it's just incredible how difficult it is to come by in most of the places we work. Fewer than five percent of children have access to imaging that's required to allow them to get um, treatment, and so the work that we're doing out of um, for Bloom Standard out of Asia is really aimed at trying to get a really affordable, uh, portable, and um, uh, high-tech solution into the field that won't require a skilled uh, technician to operate. So Mm -hmm. a, a lot of my work during COVID has been focused on that and then making sure that our emergency transport fund for the Newborn Foundation is getting replenished and has some funds in it because that has been a critical need during COVID is just making sure that children can get from point A to point B that need um, surgical care or other intervention that they can't get in the place they're born. Mm -hmm. Is
1: there something in particular you want people to know about what you do or what the the projection is for children or about healthcare. I mean, what would you want people to know? In the United States, it's very
0: easy to be uh, um, myopic in your thinking, of, and when you look at images of mothers and children in other parts of the world, in in very poor settings, those could be the slums of Mumbai to the you know, most rural part of um, Mongolia and think that somehow those people are different and mm-hmm. the mothers are different or the, that anything's it's just so far removed from our everyday reality here. And what I want people to understand is it's actually no different. Like those mothers love their babies as much as you do and as much as I do. And I know that sounds a little bit like, why would you need to point that out? But I don't think I realized until I was actually on the ground in these places um, with these doctors, nurses and mothers and babies, that it's just the profound sense of wanting to protect your child at all costs is it's there it's across the board it's there and so i feel like for those of us that have the means and the ability we we really have to do all we can to make sure that their you know those dreams and those wishes um, aren't out of reach and it really does bear mentioning because
1: i don't think it sounds obvious at all i think we think that we understand or we don't think about it but when you really do get to it um, there's a lot more that is similar than there is different.
0: That's well said. Um, so I really you said it appreciate better than that. I did. Yeah,
1: I don't think so. I think you said it really movingly. So, um, Anna Marie, where can people most easily find you? You know, where can they look look into Newborn Foundation or mm-hmm. your social media? Where can they find you?
0: so fortunately we have a pretty easy name so if you google newborn foundation i think we're the first thing that pops up um we are redoing our our website of course it's like it's funny like 10 years is like a millennia in rub world so we're like yeah our website was oh, nice okay we might need to update that so but you can find us there um on social media it's At uh, Newborn FDN, so the short of the foundation at Newborn FDN on Twitter, um, at Newborn Foundation on Instagram, and uh, at Newborn Foundation on LinkedIn. And I am always accessible by email, just Anna Marie, my first name, at newbornfoundation.org. And then, if you're interested in the tech side, the tech innovation side of things, for some of the things that we're trying to develop for resource poor settings, that would be at Bloom Standard. And it's just like it sounds Bloom, like the flower, and standard.com is the website for that. And um, we're just kind of like slowly trickling out you know, bits of information. Um, we actually were invited to present our. Our ultrasound, automated ultrasound technology to uh, the WHO about a week and a half ago. So it was amazing. I know it was really like super uh, exciting (laughs) and intimidating at the same time. But um, we just felt really not not just honored to be asked, but just I am so um, grateful for their leadership in trying to identify it doesn't matter whether you're a big company or a startup. Like they don't care. They're just like, look, all comers, right? Like we need to help make sure that um, the citizens of humanity have access to these technologies, and and I think they're very interested in creative thinking that's going to help reduce those barriers. Cost being just one, but. Um, I just I just love their approach right now that they've gotten so aggressive about this during COVID that they're looking at many, many types of solutions. So kudos to them.
1: Well, I would say the same to you. And I, I feel like like I wanna say after talking with you that it seems like you're really in the right place, that
0: you're where you're supposed to be. That's really kind of you to say. I know that's it should feel like super obvious, but I think um it the one thing age doesn't always give you is the confidence to feel like you've made all the right choices because um, even at my age I still have those uncertainties and that feeling of like oh, are we sure like I'm really doing some crazy stuff here especially with the med tech like I am not an engineer right <laughs> like what am I doing building medical devices but I care deeply about it and and that is again bringing people together that are super smart and super passionate and driven that that I that I can do mm-hmm. and so I just I, I do trust a little bit in what the universe has brought our way and that this this journey isn't quite over for us yet as a family and I think I'm glad Eve is around every day I went sledding with her earlier today and I was just like what a joy right like I have this kid who can haul her own sled up this huge hill and, you know, like how lucky are we, mm-hmm. right? Like it just, you have to fill your heart every day with what you have and hope that that can be turned around into something good. Mm. That's beautiful.
1: <laughs> Thank you so much for, for sharing some time with me and, and having the, the time for this conversation. I'm, I know you're a busy person and I really, I'm really grateful that we had the chance to talk.
0: Well, thanks for taking the time. You know, I don't talk about this story every day. I know you might think so, but I don't. And um, it does make me very grateful to look back on the last 10 years and what all has um, come our way. And I appreciate you giving me the chance to share a bit about it.
1: Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode, photos, and other episodes you might like, please visit ATECpodcast.com. You can connect with me and learn more about episodes on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram also. Just search for my name, Ronit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K, and you will find all the updates. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review so other people can find it.